Not once, not twice, but three times the charm. Max Verstappen, world champion. Another race for the world's greatest driver, Juan Manuel Fangio. Former world champion Jim Clark leapt into the lead. That's Clark's Lotus going like a bomb. But James Hunt is the world champion by just one single point. By being a racing driver, you are under risk all the time. And if you no longer go for a gap that exists, you're no longer a racing driver. And that is Michael Schumacher ahead, the world champion. To become a four-time world champion, Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, champion of the world. That's for all the kids out there who dream the impossible. Max Verstappen is champion of the world. Hello and welcome to episode 32 of F1 In Review, the episode and the hour that we will take you through the Qatar Grand Prix, which happened over the weekend. I'm Tristan Fancourt and you're joined with Angus Gallagher. Unfortunately, Tom is not here this week. He's got food poisoning, so we uh, we do wish him the best, but we felt probably best that he not try and talk to you as he is uh, yeah, under the weather a little bit. So as I said at the beginning there, Max Verstappen was crowned this weekend at, during the Qatar a sprint race, bit of an odd uh, event really because Max Verstappen became world champion as his teammate Sergio Perez crashed off the track, which I think really reflects um, the Red Bull season as a whole. I would say that was a nice analogy for where everything's been going for the Red Bull team. But it doesn't detract from the fact that we now have a third time world champion on our hands, Max Verstappen. So Angus, let's start by discussing this Um and what a feat, I think, it now is. Max Verstappen is up there, I think, amongst uh, an even more select group within the select group of world champions. Yeah, absolutely. He has cemented his status, arguably, as one of the greats, if he hadn't already. Um, it's crazy to think, I was thinking this, he has now got more world championships than Fernando Alonso has, which is mad when you think about it, because obviously we associate Alonso with greatness and longevity and now Verstappen has superseded him in terms of statistics at least he's creeping up on lots of other drivers creeping up on Prost and Vettel in terms of statistics and he's proving time and again his absolute ruthlessness behind the wheel um sure he didn't have an absolutely perfect weekend this time round. I mean the sprint shootout he came third and he came second in the sprint, but that, that would be very harsh to criticise simply because of, of those factors. Mm. In the grand scheme of things, he is showing excellence consistently. He got pole, fastest lap, race win, also managed to lead most of the race, um, if not all of it, from memory. Uh, Williams led a little bit. Uh, for Just a they smidge. Williams actually... A smidge. Yeah, yeah so he did quite lead everything. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, but he was yeah yeah as about as perfect as you can be in um in general but um yeah he's been absolutely fantastic realistically a deserved champion um the fact that he is leading the championship by what 209 points that's absolutely absurd as far as i could see it has to be that'll probably end up going down as a record for the biggest championship margin surely um because he st- he still has or now has more points than first and second in the championship com- uh, than second and third in the championship combined. 
he himself would be second in the constructors championship only behind red bull who of course wouldn't be where they are without him his team red bull has double the amount of points of mercedes here in second or over double like it's absolutely astonishing the consistency with which he can just keep on winning and delivering and i remember the days when winning back-to-back races was like an achievement or winning three in a row was an achievement he's won two in a row right now and you're thinking, right, is he going to win the last five of the season? He's going to have seven in a row again, like he had ten in, a row, ten in a row earlier in the season. I think it's his consistency, which is really sort of marks him out from the rest. It's the fact that from when he was younger, where he kind of had this like impetuousness, this immaturity, which is understandable because he came into the sport at 17, he was kind of showing just the raw talent on some occasions but then he'd let himself down a lot of other times but there was always this feeling I'd say that by the time he managed to get his stuff together and refine his his art he would be a pretty unstoppable force and I think we maybe thought he wouldn't be this unstoppable but he's proven to be that and now it's very it's very hard to see anyone just beating him full stop because he's just so indestructible and he's just completely at one with everything. His car, his team, the environment he's in. Like, it's insane how how lined up everything is for him. So, yeah, credit to him. Three-time world champion. Like we said, if any listeners can name the other ten champions who are either level with him or have more championships than him, then... Do go ahead because it's a very it's a very refined list now, and um, he has joined it. It definitely is high praise indeed, Angus. That was a yeah. I mean, I, I I know it's it's very difficult to talk about this as as you know we are ourselves individual fans of a sport. We we have our own following, and you're a Mercedes fan. I'm a very much a McLaren mm-hmm. fan. Tom, if he was here, would be talking about how much he's a Haas fan. And I mean, I think it's not yeah. as bad being a McLaren fan, but of course, Haas fan is that's. That's difficult. Maybe we'll buy Tom some merch or something for his uh, his birthday to make him feel a bit better as they've now slipped back all the way to ninth place, which was a surprise, really. Um, didn't quite see that coming. But what we did see coming was Max Verstappen's inevitable victory. Max Verstappen this year has, has been inevitable, hasn't he? And I know last week we made a joke, said, ah, ha, ha, he's going he's gonna to be world champion. But really, he's been world champion elect until it's just mathematically impossible for anyone to overtake him and looking back through the years you are right Angus there is this massive difference between Max Verstappen and other drivers and I think when when I I, I think back and look, look at some of the things I said about people like Valtteri Bottas who played you know number two to Lewis Hamilton it was a bit of a joke how Bottas was perhaps not as fast and couldn't necessarily hold a candle to, to Hamilton but there was never that feeling that Hamilton was completely and utterly on his own. There would be challenges, and eventually that rose in the 2021 challenge for Max Verstappen versus Lewis Hamilton. This year, it has been Max Verstappen in Formula 1 and everyone else being in Formula 1.5 or Formula 1.8 by the time you get to the, the, the back of the grid, I think, to some extent. And I think that's really what this year has been. It's been such a domination that there has been 
a massive drop-off, I think, in, in follower base and interest in the sport. And that's what's come as such a big surprise to, I think, long-term fans. Is if you joined in 2021, what you witnessed then was something incredible. And then 2022 happened, and, and then 2023, oh, well, oh, I guess that's enough Formula 1 then. Um, so, yeah, it, it's been definitely a predictable season from, from the top spot. And now it's just waiting, isn't it, for everyone else to, to catch up. And perhaps we're seeing the glimmers of that. I would have loved to have seen what happened um, with George Russell being at the front um, of the grid as well. This weekend, unfortunately, in the in the, in the the full race, we didn't get to see that. And also McLaren, you know, keeping up to some extent. And Oscar Piastri did a, an amazing job to win a sprint race. He held on for a bit with Max in, in the actual race, but let's face it, in the end, Max just shot off into the distance. I know the end result was five seconds between Red Bull and McLaren, but in reality, it was way, way more than that. That's just because they were kind of dropping back and um, preserving the tyres because the tyres were trying to continuously disrupt, which was great. Great, great bit of uh, excitement. But what I think we can all say is, is a huge congratulations to Max Verstappen for three times. So going to next year, Angus, what, what do we think? Do you think finally someone will be able to challenge the dominance of, of, of Red Bull? Off the back of some of the Mercedes comments, Toto Wolff says a big upgrade's coming for um, the, the next upcoming race, and next year it's going to be a very different car. We've got McLaren building up their momentum, maybe thinking about being the uh, a, a challenger for next year. We've got Ferrari doing a big overhaul, and yes, they haven't been as competitive this year, but never forget the amount or resources they've got behind them, and now they've had a year or so to bed in um, to the the newer design language, that Red Bull design language. They may be there. So next year, if if you had something to say to the potential F one listeners that are switching off, that are moving on from the sport, you know, would would it be one of of optimism? Uh, Brilliant. No. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Sorry, mate. I just. Uh, <laughs> I think that just. The the one thing which and sure regulations do, um, new regulations do close up the field eventually, and you see teams get closer. We saw that with the last regulations, Mercedes kind of opened up a gap, but then by the end, Red Bull were onto something, and you had this titanic battle between Red Bull and Mercedes towards the end of the previous set of regulations. But my main concern is that Red Bull have managed to produce this car this year with such a pace advantage and such a resilience and versatility for all conditions that if they can do that with reduced aero time and with infringement punishments and whatever they got from the FIA wind, like less wind tunnel time what could they do with a full allocation like arguably they're in a stronger position than ever they've got the best driver in F1 who is loving the time in his own team he's got a teammate teammate who is no threat to him at all realistically um he's got rivals who are quick but probably not quite as quick as him or not quite as able to extract the maximum of their car and he's got what um what lewis hamilton had over his recent dominant spell is that as the records rack up he gets more experience of winning and then when you come up against the new gun a new driver then you're likely going to come out on top. Whenever Hamilton was presented with a new challenge in those Mercedes years, so whether it was Rosberg, I know Rosberg beat him to the championship, but generally, whether it was Rosberg, it was Bottas, Hamilton always had the upper hand. 
whenever Leclerc and Verstappen came into the sport at their sort of their younger years, Verstappen or sorry Hamilton also had the upper hand in battle with them because he was a lot more experienced. Verstappen's going to have the same. Even a rival such as Norris or Russell or Leclerc or Piastri is not going to be as experienced as as Verstappen. I think he's got it all to dominate the sport for years to come, honestly, because he is just he's a phenomenon. He's an absolute phenomenon. And yes, I know I'm praising him a lot today and I may seem like I'm being overly praising, but I think the chances of him being caught rather than Red Bull are are less high, honestly. The counter to that, which I'm sure you might expand upon, is that look at the gains that McLaren made in half a year or that Aston Martin made in a pre-season. But I would say that, yeah, Red Bull looking pretty formidable. Verstappen is looking formidable, I'd say especially. But like, what what are your thoughts? Do you think you're going to be the optimism to my pessimism? It's it's certainly a long way to come. I will I will say that and. It's going to be a while, I think, till we see consistent challenging. It may well be that we end up getting to that sort of later stage um, before a proper fight, proper championship contention between multiple drivers when you get uh, track fights and, and you get a track where perhaps Red Bull won't be strongest. We saw that, for example, in Singapore. And I feel like we'll work towards that. So whilst there will be an overall driver's champion it gets a little bit more interesting when it comes to the constructors championship because this let's not forget that red bull this year got the drivers in max Verstappen and the constructors championship but the constructors championship has been going less red bull's way over the last few races in the last few races mclaren have actually scored more championship points than red bull has so i have a sort of a follow-on for you Angus, it's, it's if you are if you're pessimistic about the, the drivers, right? And I can accept that Max is in the peak of his performance. He's got the car behind him. He's got the team behind him, and he's got no one challenging him. However, Perez has been a very nice man, and he's been showing off the car to the the lower end of the field that perhaps doesn't don't get to fight <laughs> Red Bull as much. So, if you were Red Bull right now, would you start to be worried about the constructor side of it? Would you be thinking whether uh, and asking whether or not Perez is going to stay? What what would you do then? And do you think, as I say, do you think they'll hold on to the constructors' championship next year? Do you think it'll be as easy for them? I still, I still think it will, just because, like, they just have such an advantage at the moment. I can see them, even if they have a less advantage. Verstappen himself makes up for that. To be honest. And also bear in mind the fact that below, we've said this before, haven't we, this year, if you take out Verstappen, there's an unbelievable championship which is happening because you've got Perez, Hamilton, Alonso's had a great spell, the Ferraris have come up further behind. Imagine if McLaren had this pace the whole year, what they could have been able to do. But the thing is, when you've got Verstappen up there, if you've got other drivers as well, but lots of other drivers, they're taking points off each other. I think Verstappen is most at threat when he has one direct rival. And you saw that in 2021. It actually reflected what was a really high-quality battle between Verstappen and Hamilton, and we'll talk about it for years, clearly. But that was two drivers. I can't remember how often those two finished first and second, but I reckon in about two-thirds of the races that year, they were both first and second in either order. So 
if Verstappen won a race, unless Hamilton had a problem, he wouldn't gain much of an advantage. But Verstappen this year has finished has finished first many times. But one week he's had Perez in second, then he's had Alonso another week, then he had Hamilton another week, then Norris another week, Piastri this time, Leclerc on one occasion, Sainz was up there. Like it's always a different person, and you have drivers having off weekends or weekends where their car isn't as up to scratch. So whilst you have that, I think Red Bull still have enough in the constructors as well. You almost need them to have a direct rival where two drivers are better than Verstappen and Perez combined, and then you've got more of a battle. Because at the moment, it would be the mother of all comebacks were Red Bull to overturn a 300 or, or have a 331 point deficit overturned well they can't they're, 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 they've got the dry, the constructor championship already they they can't have it overturned this year but yes but, but for, yeah for, for, for next year it would still be like an unbelievable turnaround if a team were to pull that mm, back okay i say but what about perez though do you do you see his future red bull at the moment under threat or do you think he's done enough and i know there's a few races as a few races left to the end of the season. But given, just for some context, um, listeners, he finished 10th in Qatar, retired from Japan, 8th in Singapore, Italy 2nd, Netherlands 4th. So that there is this massive swing for, for Perez. And certainly since Miami, he's been on a downward trend. And if if you look at the first half of the season compared to the second, I think his average is, is much, much lower. So would you say that, Perez is under threat and, and what and if not why would they hold on to Perez given there is so much potential from other drivers such as the return of Daniel Ricciardo I think Red Bull have put themselves into a tricky position here to be honest Perez's performance you're right was, was awful I saw one article describe his performance this weekend as sackable <laughs> and I well, think exactly. whilst a bit harsh, I think it it was it was awful. It was absolutely awful, from the lack of pace or the lap time uh, time uh, track limits lap deletion in qualifying, to lackluster in the sprint. To I mean the crash in the sprint race wasn't his fault. I'd say that it was called a racing incident. I think that Esteban Ocon decided to create a a Haas sandwich with that one and Perez was sadly the uh, second piece of bread on the other side but then the race yeah he just the track limits infringements he was stuck in the field started from the pit lane admittedly but from in the car which is supposedly the fastest of all time for him to not get back in the high points I think is not acceptable especially when Russell had that collision on the first lap yeah and then still managed to drag it back to fourth which actually was a incredible drive wasn't it underrated performance there yeah but Perez I don't see how he can be replaced because what are the options you've got a rookie what would be a rookie if Liam Lawson was to get go in there they clearly don't trust Yuki Tsunoda otherwise they would have promoted him by now yeah, in my opinion yeah. um, Daniel Ricciardo is only just getting back into it and he's just missed five races with a broken wrist mm. so and he's 34 and there's still like the question mark over whether he has the raw pace which he he had right early in his career so then you think right are they going to be in a situation like they were in 2020 where they just sacked Gasly they just sacked Albon and they had to go outside their stable of young drivers to find somebody so and 
like I I don't know that they can't replace him because he's still this year. I mean, if we let's be forget he started the year well. He won two races. He got that pole in Saudi, and he has having he was having some credible performances, and there must be some pace there. Clearly, I mean, he's not he's he's not suddenly become the worst F one driver on the grid. He's still a very good driver. He's just having a, a awful run of form. So there's something there, but it's just really strange how it's deserted to, deserted him. And yet, Red Bull, I feel, as I detail, don't have an option to go to. Unless, could you see any driver being plucked from another team and put in there? I, I don't know. Well, I think the, the, the issue for Red Bull at the moment is their grand master plan seems to have fallen a little bit of a, at the wayside because of the events that took place, cast your mind back to, to the Netherlands. I think... You are absolutely right. If Red Bull wanted to replace Perez right now, they would, and they would do it with one of the drivers that they have at their disposal. And at the moment, that's Yuki Tsunoda. And um, I, I guess if you were feeling particularly generous, you could argue Liam Lawson as well. But hasn't he hasn't proved himself proved himself really yet? And so Yuki Tsunoda clearly is not, they think, ready enough to go up to the the big boy league, get up to that you know, Red Bull main car. The problem, I think, for Red Bull is what they wanted to do is bring back Ricardo, allow him to prove himself and see where he was within the team that entered him to entered him into competitive Formula 1. And the, the team, I think we can agree, he was most at home with it. And by breaking his wrist and taking himself out, he hasn't been able to demonstrate that he is the, I don't know, the, the driver in waiting for the for the team. So now they've got Perez sliding backwards. I think in an ideal world, basically what Red Bull would have done is allowed Ricardo to get to the end of the season, assess whether or not he is back to old Ricardo, the Ricardo that we know and, and long for back on the grid, that late breaking, you know, dive, like proper dive bombing. I don't want to say dive bombing because that has the kind of the, the wrong connotations to it, but you know, could, could get the car into the right place at the right time, late on the brakes and, and pull off some incredible moves that Ricardo. And then if Perez couldn't pick up the pace by the end of the season, they'd swap them out. Perez goes down to Alfa Tauri, Ricardo goes into Red Bull. Now what's really weird now is of course we've got Liam Lawson and Liam Lawson's demonstration of his, ability to drive in challenging conditions and yes i know he didn't do particularly well in, in qatar he had the accident but if you go back to the netherlands on his sort of debut he drove through horrendous conditions in, in the rain he got he's got points for alpha tauri and so red bull now i think want to get him somewhere and so i think what red bull need to do is wait till next year and a few races into next year once we can get a feel of where ricardo is and then i think this is what red bull are going to do if ricardo's strong I think they're going to have Perez in the car for a bit and then they're going to dump him. I think they're going to put Ricardo into the main car. I think they're going to bring Liam Lawson in to replace Ricardo in the Alpha Tauri car. And I think they're going to put Perez in the reserve slot. And I think that would be the ideal scenario for, for Red Bull. They, they looked at being brilliant and, and lovely and nice because they've given Liam Lawson the seat. They're looked at as being the the people's champion um, down under from bringing Ricardo back, and Ricardo's you know loved amongst the fan base. There's no getting away from that. He's a very popular driver amongst both fans and sponsors. And then finally, they get rid of Perez, and I think that Perez has got enough of a, actually say a, a negative following behind him that they will be able to do that relatively succinctly and and quickly. 
and there you go. And I think that would be a a strong move for Red Bull to demonstrate where they want to go for the future because then they've got a rookie in the AlphaTauri car alongside an up-and-coming driver in Yuki Tsunoda, so they can pick either of those two at a later date. Brought back Ricardo, and then perhaps they've got rid of a driver that doesn't have the consistency. And I think this is the thing about Perez, that he doesn't have the consistency, and it's the inconsistency that's going to cause Red Bull the biggest headache. And I think, actually, when you look at the the collision that you highlighted in the sprint race, I yeah. think that is actually symptomatic of an overall issue with Perez. Now, I completely agree, absolutely agree, that it was not his fault that he got hit. But the problem is <laughs> he didn't have the racing forethought and, and necessarily... You know the the racing craft of some other drivers to consider what the consequences of him putting his car in that position would be, because he was following a fight. He put his car into a position where, let's face it, it was going into a corner. Three into one isn't going to go. If he just hung back a bit and said, "Right, well, I'm in a Red Bull. I'm faster." I can get them on the straights. I can pick them off one by one. I'll let them squabble. I'll get past. Then he wouldn't have had the problem. The thing is, Perez throughout this season has been far too aggressive. And I think to some extent, he's kind of been too ambitious with the car. Max has hung back a few times this season to his um, to his credit. During Monza, do you remember when he was he was fighting signs and he, he was trying to get past, but you know he'd hang back and he'd go, "Oh, that's naughty, that's naughty defense there," you know. And in this new Max Verstappen, he's able to think forward and say, "Well, I'm not going to challenge there because science is going to come across and you know maybe hit me or whatever. I'll get him when I know they're vulnerable." And I think what we saw this weekend was actually the same thing as we saw when he hit people like Albon for example you know he put the car in the wrong place at the wrong time without thinking about the possible consequences and I think that's the difference that makes a, a good driver which Perez is from a really great driver you are, I do ask myself the question which is would someone like Alonso have positioned the car in the same place in which he would be vulnerable to two other squabbling cars I don't think he would have. Yeah, I think Perez's racecraft has left a lot to be desired this year. And I get that there's the difference between, you could argue, oh, well, Verstappen is out front, he doesn't have to deal with this, so therefore put him in those situations. But we've seen time and again, especially last year, it brings back memories of when we were at Spa, and Verstappen absolutely carved through the field. And his ability to judge when to go for it, when to hold back, Admittedly, in a fast car, like sure, I get that. But Perez is a fast car, and he seems to put himself in situations where he's not in the right place. He doesn't have the the chance to be able to get through the field more quickly. And it's something which sep- which actually in the end separates the good drivers from the great ones. And Perez hasn't shown himself to be a great driver with that. And even if it is a case of wrong place, wrong time. He needs to he needs to get those overtakes done on the straight if we're talking about the ones in Qatar. Especially when you know in Qatar the only place you're realistically going to get the overtake done is on the straight. But that's a whole other debate another time. But I reckon you should get on the phone to Christian Horner and let him know about your, your master plan there in terms of 
uh, yeah, keeping Perez for half a season. Yeah, yeah, Perez half a season, then dropping him down. I don't think he'd quite necessarily want a reserve role, but to be honest, Red Bull might be thinking, right, give him one more year, and then his contract's up at the end of 2024. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think it is. And then after that, bring in Ricardo or something like that. Or look outside the grid for someone else. I don't know who that would be. Mm. Or outside the, or on the rest of the grid for somebody else other outside the Red Bull stable. But yeah, it's a tricky one because there aren't and you don't want to put you don't want to put a young driver in there to destabilise things or one of the the rivals. The only one you could possibly see is Lando Norris. Yeah. You know, Verstappen and Norris at McLaren. But then McLaren are on the up right now. Does Norris really want to leave that and would he back himself against Verstappen, maybe? But does he want to leave a safe, welcoming, positive environment that McLaren is and go to a Red Bull one where it's Team Verstappen? I don't know. Yeah, I'm not, that Norris rumour, I've heard it as well. And actually, it's funny because I, I think Red Bull got their eye on Norris as well. And given um, Norris's clear and obvious talent, then... I, I don't know. McLaren can't pick it up next year. I think there's definitely a threat him leaving there. But I feel like it's time, Angus, to to step off the 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 Red Bull praising train. I put that to one side. It'll be interesting to see what happens to Paris at the end of the season. Perhaps that's one for the silly off season, which we are surprisingly not that far away from, given that it's in October. And head to the believe it or not second topic of this podcast um half an hour in and we're finally moving on and it was not just a crazy race in terms of of uh, collisions and fights and well fights if you're not max verstappen who just sort of ran away but it was also a bit of a crazy race in terms of just the race and everything that happened it was a silly race from a tire perspective because it was discovered um on throughout friday and uh, friday qualifying i have to get the right friday qualifying because it was a sprint weekend that the drivers were getting onto the curbs for too long and too fast and it was causing micro fractures in the tire sidewall where the sidewall meets the top of the tire there was sort of cracking going on and so pirelli said nope can't can't full race can't do the full race on on them as we as we'd like we've got to have safety first and so for the first time that i think we've seen or i've ever seen this there was mandatory pit stops no one could drive on a tire more than 18 laps if you had older tires um then you would deduct however many laps you've done on those tires already from that overall 18 so it was decided that there would be at least three pit stops most people did just three pit stops apart from george russell who ended up doing four because of his early incident with um lewis hamilton and paired with that that are, I'd say, onslaught of fast laps after a, one after another because of the um, the fact that you, you didn't have to save tyres. You could just keep going and pit three times. There was also the unbearable temperatures that were reached in during the Qatar Grand Prix. It was nearly 40 degrees Celsius just in the ambient air temperature. We had drivers passing out. Esteban Ocon was vomiting. Logan Sargent had to retire and big up the Williams team for deciding to put their driver safety first. I, I cannot I cannot emphasize the respect I have for the Williams team coming into the radio and saying there is no 
shame in retiring. I think that was an absolutely sensible option. Lance Stroll failed to basically get out of the car at the end and passed out next to, a, an, well, on an ambulance. Luckily, he actually managed to get to the end of the race. And Fernando Alonso came on during halfway through the race, begging for some water to be thrown on his hot bottom because it was so hot in the cockpit. And I know it's funny, but this is Fernando Alonso. He has been around for a very long time and he was complaining about the heat. George Russell called it unbearable and Bottas called it a torture test. Wow. So, mm. Angus. It's <laughs> a long list there. Is the Qatar Grand Prix fit for purpose? Is the Qatar Grand Prix fit for purpose? It's interesting, right, because we've had races in the past which are in such horrible, humid conditions. I'd describe them as horrible because I could never personally survive longer than a day or two in them. Not a hot weather person at all. It's it's just so hot and humid. And I think, I was thinking about this. One thing which I think has added to the reason why the drivers were feeling so tired and so um, exhausted and ill, to be honest, was because of the way the track is. The fact that, think how many fast corners there are on that track that we've just witnessed and how it's such a fast, there's so much G-force, you've got lots of fast sections, so quite a short lap time for what is actually quite a long track. It's relentless, isn't it? It is. It is relentless. And sure, like, races like, I remember when we had Bahrain and Malaysia next to each other on the calendar, that was an incredible double header in terms of the heat and humidity. And I still think Bahrain... I think holds the record for the highest temperature in a Formula One race because the, tra- the air temperature was something ridiculous, like 42 degrees, and they still raced in it. Um, and that was back when Bahrain was a, a day race, not a, not a night race like it is nowadays. And sure, we've had those conditions in races in the past, but Qatar was just another level, it seems. And I wonder if it was due to the intensity of the track because Bahrain and Malaysia have stop-start sections, whilst Qatar... You don't really have many slow corners at all in a Formula 1 car. Even the Turn 1 hairpin and ones like that, they're pretty rapid in a Formula 1 car. You're still in like third gear and going through at about like 80, 90 miles an hour, which is slow for them, but like compared to other hairpins around the the calendar, compared to that hairpin in Monaco where you're doing like 29 miles an hour and your steering's at full lock, it's definitely a lot different. I think... It is more of a concern as well, and it's good to see that Alex Wurtz, who's a former Formula 1 driver, and he's the head of the joint head of the Grand Prix Drivers Association, they're going to look into it because, at the end of the day, conditions like that, whilst some might say, oh, well, it's too tough, like, they should get on with it, and they race in Singapore just fine, and it's, like, it's part of the, part of the job. At the end of the day, you've got to have safety in mind as well. You can't neglect that. It's a simple fact. So the fact that they had this situation means that they're going to have to look at it and they're going to have to um, see how to improve the situation and how to improve the ability of the drivers to stay cool in conditions such as this. Because, yeah, it was just utterly ridiculous how much pressure they were under. And poor Logan Sargent, who can't catch a break at the moment, spun out in the sprint race had heat stroke on the day, had to be helped out the car. Like you said, all those examples of drivers like Albon, Stroll, Ocon, all struggling. Ocon has since said, I'd have to be killed to be able to stop racing even in those conditions, which 
I mean, sure, I, I admire his bravery, but Esteban, mate, you don't have to go that far. Like, it is about safety as well. So, yeah, very interesting situation. And they've said the FIA that they're going to deal with it in a matter of urgency. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. Maybe move the race. I, I'm not move the race to March. I'm not too. I'm not. Too, I'm not too up to date or up to speed on Qatar's general annual climactic conditions. But <laughs> well, I'm luckily for pre- you. <laughs> oh really? I'm guessing it's quite. I'm guessing it's just hot all the time. It's pretty I hot don't know. all the time. Um, Mark. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, we are a bit restricted, aren't we, from from the fact that we have the Christmas off season, the winter off season. So we. We are not racing during Qatar's coolest period, but March seems to be the most sensible options. And I think that would really, really help. It's good. Isn't it weird, though, that F1 is is actually reviewing this? Because I, I 100% thought that they were just going to say, ah, well, yeah, they're gladiators. Well, there's that argument, isn't there? They're gladiators. These are extreme athletes. We, we shouldn't have to pander to the, the you know, the those weaklings who would be unable to race these conditions but i i thought of something actually because that i and really concerned me and that when i was watching lance troll fail to get out the car the only thing i could get have in my mind was what happens if the car was on fire and i know it's a bit out there but it's not really it's still very much in the back of my mind that we saw roman grosjean's car explode into flames and we saw for example, Charles Leclerc. Do you remember Charles Leclerc's car on fire in Austria? The cars catch fire. And the only thing I could think of was what what would have happened if the car had, you know, driver had lost consciousness because of the heat extreme extreme heat and exhaustion, hit the barrier, and then the car burst into flames. They would they wouldn't be able to get out. There's no way they would be able to get out quickly. And and it's these sort of considerations which I think they never necessarily get to the the front of the argument until it happens there's always that phrase isn't there that everything that bad that can happen will happen everything and and that's what really worried me was they were struggling to get out of the cars at the end of the race but if they really needed to get out the cars and they couldn't then we would have had a horrific incident on our hands i think the only solution really let's face it is to move the the race to the cooler period in march when temperatures are in the sort of 20 degrees and i think that will help um solve some of these issues and i think given that other sports have a maximum temperature in which they compete in and and we ask people to compete in i think we're going to have to introduce a very similar thing here because we can't we can't just have the drivers that are going at 200 miles an hour passing out espan alcon saying he's passing out stroll saying he was passing out and you might not like stroll but you don't i don't wish him actual physical harm <laughs> that's far that's way too much so i think i'm glad there's going to be a review and i think we'll keep you posted listeners on, on what the the changes will be um i think to some extent they're gonna to have to maybe find out a way as well to to deal with some of the sand and some of the issues surrounding that um yuki sonoda said that he tried to lift his visor up um during the race to get some air in and his face just got hit with some sand and you know, he's being, if you're asking the drivers to be sandblasted as well when they're trying to keep cool, I don't think that's sustainable. And clearly F1 doesn't think it's sustainable either. 
So let's, let's also move on to the tyres for a second as well. Um, it, it was a bit ironic, really. Uh, Pirelli were announced as the future tyre manufacturer for Formula 1 for, um, going forward. They were the only ones that bid in for that. But given they've been doing such a stellar job so far, I don't think F1 was going to uh, to deny that particular um, bid. So I think the tyres really made it cause a double whammy for this weekend. On one hand, we had the extreme heat and things like that. But also... In mandating the pit stops, what we ended up happening was every driver knowing in the back of their mind they can just push as hard as they want because they don't care if the tyre only lasts 22 laps. 18 is the maximum anyway. So they may as well do lap after lap, qualifying laps fast as they can. So do you think that added to the race? Because this was an experiment, right? Moving away from the perhaps negative sides and the, the extreme heat and, and what that caused on the driver. Do you think it, was, it, it made the race better having more pit stops? Because to some extent, that's where everyone's been going. Having the tyres destroy themselves means more pit stops and more excitement. Or actually, do you think we ended up hitting a threshold of that was too many pit stops? Where where did you fall um, in the great debate of you know future pit stop management and requirements? I mean, interestingly, could we add to the previous debate? Did the pit stops and the situation with that mean that the race became more intense? Yeah, no, that was the point. They were they were doing qualifying laps. No, I'd have to. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you there, because it therefore meant they couldn't take it as easy. I think that the whole thing in terms of the tires was a bit of a shambles. And sure, I think it's maybe harsh because those kinds of situations. It only becomes a shambles when you realise that it's happening and that actually nine times out of ten we're not talking about tyres and everything else that's going on. It's a bit like in football at the moment with the video assistant re- uh, replays, the VAR. You go, it, Everyone goes on about it so that when it's actually fine and nothing is going wrong, then people forget because they're so used to throwing uh, pelters and everything at it. So... With the tyres, we should appreciate that there hasn't been too much drama with the tyres in recent races. I think the new the new rule that we discussed in terms of the mandatory tyres for each session has actually ended up going quite well overall. But this one with the yeah the the, the curbs, the new curbs, the track just which we had issues with two years ago, and remember quite a few drives in the race had their tyres cut in the the race by the curbs. Yes, and sim yeah, similar sort of issue this time, but it was made worse by the fact the tires were just like really struggling, and I think it was a pretty unprecedented step that the FIA had to imp- and Pirelli had to impose this eighteen lap limit because you don't see that often at all, and as a result, you had that really intense race, and it was a weird one because you had to sort of keep track of right, driver A has done seventeen laps, so they have to come in now. Uh, driver B has done 16 laps, in you come, next two laps. I had one thought, which was, what if, because three, so 18 laps, three times 18 is 54. What would have happened if, let's say a driver pissed on lap 18 and lap 36, and then they went, you know what, I'll go to the end, 21 laps. Would they have, would they have got a penalty for that? Would they have been disqualified because of the seriousness of the tyre situation? Because... Yeah, I don't know. It's a bit like if a driver goes 
a whole race without pitting, then would they get disqualified because they haven't made a pit stop? What would the rule be with that? It's a really good question. My gut feeling is they would have got a black and orange flag. And what that does is it informs a driver that the car has an issue and they are forced to come in a pit. If you ignore a black and orange flag, then you get black flagged and that's it. Disqualified from the race. You're out. Yeah. So they would have... Because... I did. I did think. Yeah, some some drivers might have tried that, but then they would have had that punishment because the FIA would have said, "Well, on safety grounds, you've really broken the rules and you're in massive trouble." Yeah, it is interesting though that this. I think this was a scenario which I think we can praise the um, FIA for quickly implementing a solution, and I would argue putting driver safety first. I know there was an unexpected consequence, which was the making the relentless Qatar Grand Prix even worse but i do think that they are listening and waking up to the fact that as the you know the head of formula one the rule makers you know formula one management i know is a big thing but they they don't make the rules the fia (laughs) make the rules and i think the fia are waking up to the fact that they are able to adapt processes in order to quickly put driver safety first and i think them and pirelli did a very good job this weekend of making sure that the drivers knew what was going on. There were press conferences and releases from Pirelli about what the dangers could be, allowing the drivers to have that extra 10 minutes sort of sighting lap as well when the paint, the curbs were painted wider so that you know there was less risk from the um, drivers going deep into the curbs and damaging the tyres, and then also putting in the mandatory pit stops to prevent drivers pushing tyres too far because what we really saw this weekend was drivers will always push themselves to the limit and sometimes too far. And if you don't restrict them, then they will damage themselves. And a case in point, if you think back, Angus, to last year with the bouncing, do you remember how Lewis Hamilton struggled to get out of the car after the Azerbaijan Grand Prix because he was bouncing down the road and, and just, you know, destroying his lower back? Yes, and and you say so when I when that. when I hear these arguments of well the drivers can't have been that bad because they got to the end of the race and you know uh, the gladiators so, yeah they they will just keep going so we need the FIA to save the drivers from themselves to some extent and so I was yeah. pleased this weekend that we actually saw quick action that showed and paved the way for I think future actions to counter unexpected issues. Yeah, agreed. Because with the drivers, they're in the business and they're paid the big bucks to try their best to try and get results. And sometimes they'll push themselves and end up pushing themselves too far with that. So there needs to be an outside um, an outside initiative or an outside group which has a ruling over that. A bit like in rugby with um, concussion where you don't say to a player, oh, um, are you feeling dizzy or nauseous? If they're a sports person, they're probably going to go, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine, mate. Don't worry about it. I'll be okay. I'll go back on. But how can a person in that state say that? It's the same with a Formula 1 driver who is putting their body through possibly absolute hell. They need to have someone sort of tapping them on the shoulder going, you know what? Let's do this. Let's have these measures in place so you're safer. Okay, then you'll be feeling a lot better. So I agree. It's like important to have that that measure before the driver's yeah, sort of go over the limit. And that's why you have groups like the Grand Prix Drivers Association, the FIA, on top of safety matters, and they have their meetings. 
and they have driver representation as well. George Russell is one of the presidents of the uh, Grand Prix Drivers Association. I think he is the president. Mm-hmm. So there is, yeah, there's measures in place to, to help out with that. And it's important there is because then you also get a chance where if a decision needs to be made mid-weekend, like the tyre one this weekend, as much as it's a bit of a embarrassing move and it can be a bit of a uh, backpedal, if it needs to be made, so be it. It helps people out and it's safer. And then we can move on and sort of go ahead with the events with a greater sense of faith in what's going on and a greater sense of security. And so that's all we've got time for in this episode of F1 In Review. Episode 32, if you can believe we're we're that deep into the season now. We managed to cover just two of the topics that came out from this Qatar Grand Prix, the Sprint Weekend Extravaganza. Um, if you managed to tune into every single session that was put on, well done. You got to see quite a, a range of excitement, not only from Max Verstappen's victory, but also to the up and coming McLaren uh, rise, which I'm sure we'll talk about next week along with other topics such as last stroll as we head towards the great triple header the final triple header of this season thank you very much for listening if you got to this point in the podcast please follow us on x which is formerly twitter as well as tiktok where you can find short segments of um, the podcast that we've had um, so far and engage the conversation there and um, please also follow us on whatever listening platform that you're you're finding this podcast on and you can also find us on youtube as well if you if you fancy having a more audio visual side of this podcast so thank you very much for listening and i hope you join us next week <laughs> <laughs>